All right, good evening, listeners. Today is August 20th. You are tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can mean only one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm your host, Scott Classic. And I'm Adrian Gallo. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out all about the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our upcoming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. So Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live. We are talking live right now. And should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and the guests. And they do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. So tonight, we are joined by Carolyn Gombert from Hydrology. Good evening. Thank you so much for taking the time to have me on the show. Certainly. So, Carolyn, can you tell us a little bit about what your research involves? Give us just a little overview of what um, you would describe your research to maybe someone you've just met or uh, grandma or grandpa or something. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a hydrology student, which means I am studying water, specifically water temperature. And I get the privilege of working on the Willamette River, which is essentially Oregon's watershed, over two-thirds of the population lives in the Willamette Basin, and I'm trying to figure out where the cold water is along the river and then how it's created, and that's important because it's too warm for a lot of the cold water fishes that currently call the river home. So what happens if a fish doesn't have enough cold water? You know, does it, does it just move around a lot? Can it find other cold water? Absolutely. That's a great question. So if you think not about fish, but about humans during the summer, whenever there's a heat wave, um, your energy levels are lower, you're seeking out the cool places. And in Corvallis, that might be the library, that might be a coffee shop, and fish are no different. So it's metabolically expensive for them to thermoregulate. Those are a lot of really big words, but basically that means that when fish are in warmer water, they have to put a lot more energy into keeping their body doing the work that it needs to do so that they can stay healthy. Um, and so it's best if they can find cooler places. A lot of times because our air temperature is so warm in the summer these days, the main stem of the Willamette tends to be too warm for the fish. And one might ask, okay, well, like, what is too warm? If you're a human, if you're talking triple digits, like 100 degrees Fahrenheit, you know that's going to be a toasty one. But for <laughs> fish, it's closer to um, 64 and a half degrees Fahrenheit, which um, since we're doing science, we use metric, and the magic number there is 18 degrees Celsius. So you, if you are a cutthroat trout or a Chinook salmon, it is best for you during the summer if the temperature is below 18 degrees Celsius. And so when the main stem gets too warm, these fish migrate to either side channels, which come off of the main stem, or an alcove, which is essentially half a side channel. It's just connected downstream, and they're able to find a thermal refuge. So it sounds like we kind of know where these thermal refuges may be in these side channels and alcoves. So why can't we just build them? 
That's an excellent question. So the tricky thing is, depending on what the history of the feature tends to be, so when it was created, it tends to either be the same temperature as the main stem, sometimes they're warmer than the main stem, and sometimes they're cooler. So just because you have a side channel or just because you have an alcove, it doesn't mean that it's necessarily automatically a refuge. So this summer, I've gotten to um, take a canoe and paddle between (laughs) Corvallis. There's sites that we're looking at near Corvallis and then also between Junction City and Harrisburg and put these tiny waterproof thermometers into these sites and see if they're cooler than the main stem in less than 18 degrees Celsius or if they're warmer. And so if you're trying to create one of these features, if you just pick a random chunk of floodplain and dig out an alcove, which actually has been done in two different places along the Willamette, one of which is just across the river in Corvallis. It was um, dug out in the late 90s, and it's still an alcove, which is pretty amazing because you have a lot of water flowing through the river, and during the winter, a lot of sediment is moved and deposited. So it's a testament to the engineers that designed it uh, that it hasn't filled in. But when we put thermometers in, it tends to be greater than 18 degrees C. So you don't see a lot of fish when you're at that site. And even though we had all the tools and we put um, a site off of the main channel, it doesn't seem to be working because um, we're not exactly sure why yet, but we're thinking it has to do with how the water is flowing beneath the subsurface. So there's this term um, called hyperreic flow, which means river water goes beneath the river and instead of flowing across the surface, it flows through the gravel and the bed. And when it enters the alcove or enters the side channel, it tends to be cooler, especially if you have a really long flow path where this water went in in like February and it's coming out in August. So unless you can really pick those places on the floodplain where you're going to facilitate flow paths like that, you're going to be a little out of luck if you're trying to engineer a feature for a fish. So it sounds like rivers are a bit more complicated than one might imagine initially when we just think it's just some water flowing down in a particular path, right? There's all these changes involving erosion, sediment being deposited elsewhere, um, and just because you dig a trench, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be any cooler or warmer. Um, And so you're talking about... um, sort of how the groundwater travels is sort of a a function that may predict the temperature. Is that sort of what I'm getting at? Yeah, that's you're you're definitely on the right track. And um, thanks for bringing up the term groundwater, because this is something that a lot of folks have been working to differentiate. So there's been a lot of work done in the past on the question of water temperature on the Willamette by Stan Gregory, who's an amazing professor over in fisheries. And then also there's a lot of folks up in Portland at the USGS Water Science Center. And what they've been able to do is collect um, samples of water to test for oxygen isotopes. And that will kind of shed light on whether the water that's flowing through the subsurface is groundwater or if it's river water that's entered the subsurface and is flowing through. Um, so those results are still being processed and it'll be really exciting to see that come out. But essentially, yes, depending on what's going on underneath invisibly, Um, you're going to get different results. And that changes over time as 
rivers have so much momentum with all of the water that's in the channel during the winter. They do a lot of work moving rocks back and forth, which is pretty invisible until flow drops and you have a lower stage in the summer. So you you just described that rivers are really alive. They're super dynamic. Can you help us understand, since you're a kind of an expert in this field for compared to someone who just floats the Willamette in summer, <laughs> can, you, can you help us understand what it means for rivers to be dynamic, especially the Willamette? And uh, there's a great LIDAR picture, which is a light detection and ranging that shows all of the beautiful side channels that the Willamette River has taken in the past. So can you help us like, comprehend all of those really intricate and intersecting side channels? Absolutely. I will try my best because I am nowhere close to being an actual expert, but um, <laughs> I have spent a lot of time soaking my head in hydrology, if you will. Um, <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> but a river like the Willamette, when you have higher flows, it's entraining the sediment that's in its bed. And well, what do you so, mean by entraining? Oh, yes, that is a good question. So entraining or picking up. So you have a lot of movement and it's able to get these cobbles, these sometimes boulders, if you have a lot of water, to come off of the bed and moves them downstream. And so then when flow drops and you don't have as much water, it deposits the sediment that it's picked up. And that's where you have gravel bars that are being built. Um, you also have um, sometimes in an extreme case, and I think there's a photo of this that you guys were really wonderful and included on the blog, um, you might get an avulsion, which is an event with, that happens during high flow where the river actually moves from one side to the other. So you might have a main channel that's flowing along the left bank and then you re get a really large flood and all of a sudden it's flowing through the right bank. It's going to cut the path of least resistance, whatever that is at the point in time. But um, for the Willamette, it's particularly interesting because back in the late 1800s when a lot of Euro-American settlers arrived, the river was managed very differently than it ha had been by the native people that called Oregon home. And so in the past uh, 50 years, there have been a lot of dams built on tributaries and then also revetments installed on the bank so that the river is locked in place and it can't move. And Which, revetments are like a retaining wall type of structure to keep the river in that channel? Yeah, absolutely. So the way revetments usually work today, it's just large boulders that engineers have done force balance calculations to ensure that no matter how much water comes through, those boulders are going to stay in place. And so if you're a farmer that has a field on the floodplain right adjacent to the river, you're really thankful that those are there because <laughs> your land's going to be protected as opposed to eroded. Yeah. <clears throat> So um, we're just sort of wondering, you know, maybe how much do we know based on what fish are doing in the Willamette when they're um, trying to move or migrate to colder areas? And, you know, what sort of efforts are being done and how, how scientific are they? Are these, you know, something that we totally understand yet or are we sort of still trying to gather data on this and, you know, to see whether... Um, any, uh, if there are any restoration efforts at all, how, how good they're working. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, there has been a lot of energy 
put in toward restoration in the past couple of decades, moving forward, trying to put the landscape back together in a way that's sustainable, not only for humans, but also for the species that call the Willamette home. But the science isn't quite far enough. Um, the data and the scientific understanding haven't really made it to a point where we can shape policy in a way that reflects what we know. So we don't know exactly how the coldest features are created. And once we're able to do that, we'll probably be able to direct restoration energy to a very pointed place where you actually have results versus um, my advisor likes to call it glorified gardening, where it makes you feel really good. Like, oh, we're trying to we're trying to help. Like we were able to like save the fish. Yeah, save the fish. Like replant the floodplain. Like we dug out an alcove, a whole alcove. Um, but if you haven't done the science to back up the engineering design that's happening, you're going to come up dry or too warm in this case. So you bring up a good point because restoration efforts are happening across the United States and really across the world of trying to find ways to build fish habitat or to slow the movement of water, whether it's large woody debris in the streams or creating you know, uh, some slower and colder waters. But if we don't know the mechanics of how water is actually moving through the system, then we can build as many alcoves and side channels as we want. But if they don't actually function the way we want them to, then it's kind of a lost cause because now we're now we're just putting holes in the river and side channels. So from your perspective, you were able to find a man-made structure uh, that was made, and you also found a natural kind of structure that was made. Can you describe uh, you know these two locations in your field research and how they differ? Yeah, absolutely. And I think before I go into this, I should also credit again Stan Gregory, the fisheries professor, who has done so much work on temperature on the Willamette and knows where the fish are and what kind of habitat they're using. And he is such a strong advocate for just letting the river do the work because it naturally creates the features that the species that inhabit the river really need in terms of ecosystem services. So as um, Adrian just described, there are two field sites that I've been working at this summer one is a constructed alcove just across from Corvallis. I think I mentioned that previously. And we looked at other alcoves that were in the upper Willamette and tried to match in age and then in aspect and orientation. So the constructed alcove is north-south and is about 20 years old. And we found another site just downstream of Junction City that also is north-south aspect and has been on the river for about 20 years. The constructed site at Corvallis was dug in with a backhoe and the natural site upstream, or excuse me, downstream of Harrisburg, or of Junction City um, actually used to be a part of the main channel of the river. And so there was an avulsion probably in the 1996 flood. And again, you can see this in the aerial photos on the blog. This illustrates this much better than words ever, <laughs> ever could. A picture is a thousand words. But at the um, constructed site, it's warm. It's got a lot of um, macrophytes, so like aquatic vegetation. And you'll see a lot of polywogs, so tadpoles that are going toward becoming a frog. But we have not seen any fish in that alcove. And then when you take a dissolved oxygen measurement, so how much oxygen is mixed into the water, which 
fish need to breathe and live and prosper, um, it's low. It's like two milligrams per liter versus when you go to the natural site downstream of Junction City, um, it's really healthy. The water column still has some aquatic vegetation, but it's not like right up to the top. And it's I'm unfortunately not a botany expert, um, but they're different, very different plants than what you see in the constructed alcove. And when you take temperature readings, you're getting 13, 14 degrees C, even in shallow water that's not moving a lot. And so that's where we haven't had a chance to amalgamate all of the data that we have collected and are still in the process of collecting things at a couple of sites. But that's where you start to wonder, okay, well, is the cold water coming from a long flow path that's invisible to our eyes and moves very slowly because groundwater or surface water from a river that's moving through the ground moves at a pace of like a meter or um, excuse me, like a hundredth of a meter or well, even even slower than that. I guess it's the the flow in the feature itself, but it moves very very slowly. And so, if you're again, if you're having the water go in drain February and come out drain August, that's like a, a six seven month travel time. So a six seven month travel time that because of of when it went in at February, it's very cold as well. Yeah, absolutely. So that's that's what we're. Th- Thinking. We definitely will need to, I know um, Adrian mentioned LIDAR, so the light detection and ranging on the Willamette. So that shows you what the past flow paths of the river were. So trying to cross-reference the LIDAR data with the temperature data that we have to kind of come up with a, an explanation behind this. So it sounds like we need to examine the history of rivers, especially previous flow channels. And in order to build structures that will more likely develop into these cold water refuges for, for fish. So it sounds like using the combination of LIDAR and then ground truthing is really going to help build. or So that way we know where to build these you know cold water refuges so that they are the most advantageous. Um, but I think it's only fitting uh, as your current status as like a hydrologist and how water moves. It's very tortuous that, you know, can you describe your undergraduate career and kind of the left and right turns that you took in order to get to where you are now? Yes, my own personal avulsion. <laughs> um, but absolutely. So when I was in undergrad, I was actually studying words. So the bachelor's that I hold is in English with a focus on creative writing. And um, I remember when I was a freshman, I had kind of thought about environmental science, but then ended up in a lot of big lectures that had a lot of very impersonal, repetitious assignments associated with them and just really missed language and writing. So by the time I had gotten to my second year of undergrad, I had decided that English was the thing for me. You know, like if you have the degree in thinking, you can somehow find a job <laughs> somewhere, even if it's not a specific skill. Um, and that's when I started taking more literature classes and creative writing classes, but had already kind of done a little bit of legwork for environmental science. So figured I could throw that in as a minor. And I also knew I wanted to have an opportunity to study abroad when I was in undergrad. So there was a term, it was my second semester junior year when I got a chance to spend three and a half months in Costa Rica on a tropical ecology program. Oh, and tough life. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Especially when that's in the winter and you're going down and there's sunshine and there's snow in New York State. 
So, um, but that I think really shifted where I saw my life going. My classmates were just such wonderful, curious, humble people and had an amazing energy. And um, I think just to kind of put that and make it more concrete, just thinking back to some of the research projects that the faculty, the wonderful faculty that we had down there supported us as we were at different field sites. Um, I got a chance to work with a couple of other girls. We were looking at photosynthesis rates. So we spent time standing in this marsh and putting baking soda into these test tubes and um, definitely not quite as accurate as what I'm doing <laughs> now, but um, we felt like we were making progress and making headway. So just being able to go through that process. And I remember there was another group, they were looking at the interaction between cattails and ant, com ant communities that called cattails home. And the, the genus of all the cattail plants is uh, typhus. So there was three boys, Nate, Asher, and um, Ethan, and they called themselves the Typha Frat. And like every day that they were going out to collect data, they had their machetes. And you just, you have to have a good sense of humor because when you're like having to machete your way through to your field site or like stand hip deep in water for like six hours at a time, you have to be able to make a joke here or there. It's like, oh, well, that didn't, that didn't go well, but we'll try it again. Um, and I think nature really demands humility from people who are asking questions and trying to figure out how it's working and, and what's going on. Um, so that was an amazing experience that changed what I thought I wanted to do with my life. So when I got back to school, I only had one year left and it's like, well, do I do a victory lap and try to completely change my major? <laughs> Or do I just do the word thing and, and head on out the door and then um, end up in graduate school, which I um, ended up graduating in four years and went and took a little bit of time to teach, actually. So as an English major, you're a thinker, and I always loved learning. So it's like, well, I guess I can, excuse me, try teaching. And if that doesn't work out, there's always science. So actually, before we get to your teaching career, because I think you have a really interesting perspective <laughs> on being a teacher, can we step back to your experience in Costa Rica? And, you know, you totally glamorize science of you standing in a marsh for six hours at a time or trying to huck through cattails with machetes. Uh, did that not turn you off to science of this is not exactly easy work? You were sweating. You're like probably throwing flies off from around you. But you still liked taking measurements? Like what was that first experience of kind of doing research? Like what was that like for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, yeah, it was, it was definitely frustrating because <laughs> you go out and you try things. And especially when you have, we had three different um, professors. So you had like one professor who was kind of the point person for whatever project you were working on and they'll make suggestions, but like they're not the ones who are standing out there next to you when you're trying to get your essay to work in the marsh. Um, but I, I think I just really liked the epicness of it. Like it's, a, it's an amazing narrative. It's like, and then we did this impossible thing and then we got numbers and now we have a story. Um, <laughs> so just the, even though it sounds really unpleasant, I think I saw it as very romantic. Huh. Okay, so, so so now you have your love of numbers and your love of getting data. Let's let's transition back to your love of words because after you finished your undergrad, uh, you were a teacher. So describe us or describe to us, you know, what it was like being a teacher, you know, what class you were teaching, and you know what that was like. 
Yeah, absolutely. So um, in graduate school, a lot of people have an opportunity presented to them to be a teacher as a teaching assistant for a professor in a course. And that's very different than having your own classroom that you show up to in the morning and you're the person who sets the tone, who sets whatever you're focusing on, who mitigates any situations that might come up in those um Especially if you're, when you're teaching eighth grade, there are quite a few of those during the day. Uh, but I was very interested in teaching because I've always loved to learn and then also think about how other people learn. The brain's a really beautiful thing, and each person has their own skill set and different strengths. Um, I ended up teaching reading, which I don't know if anybody can remember when they learned to read, but usually you're good by the time you get out of like first, second grade and your brain just knows what to do. And you definitely learn new vocabulary words, but it's just second nature. So like how in the world do you describe how to make an inference? And especially if you have struggling readers, it's not a very concrete task. And when you have kids that are not quite up to grade level, I was teaching at a a charter school down in Texas. Um, So if they're not already up to grade level, you kind of got to trick them into wanting to do the work. So instead of celebrating the different ways of learning and teaching to a classroom full of um, nerds and squares, which I would would definitely put myself (laughs) in that category for K through 12 as I went through my own education. That Um, makes all of us here at Inspiration (laughs) Dissemination too, not alone. Thank you. Um, But you have a lot of creative thinkers who you need to make learning into a game that they want to play and they want to win. So even when that comes down to like how they occupied space in the classroom, I can remember when I was teaching eighth grade, I had a student by the name of DeMarcus, like very charismatic, like liked to talk a lot <laughs> and was often running his mouth when I was trying to instruct students as to like what they were going to need to do for the rest of the period. Um, but one time I asked him to be um, be quiet while he was talking. And so he stopped talking, uh, but instead of talking, he proceeded to bark because I hadn't asked him to like be silent. Wait, like, wait, wait. It's like bark. stop talking. Yeah, or stop talking. Okay. Yes, that's I right. bark. <laughs> bark like a dog. He's- yeah, he barked at me. And so like when you're supposed to be the person setting the tone and like <laughs> mitigating anything that comes up at the front of the classroom, um, you want to laugh, but you can't because you're the adult in the room. And so I, my brain just like wasn't used to thinking like brains like DeMarcus's brain. So I think those are the best teacher who teachers who know how to be mischievous and kind of cause a little bit of a ruckus because then you'll know how to respond to your students who are wired more like that. Think on your toes when you are presented with a barking DeMarcus. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> wow. So um, you taught English class for a while. Um, I think you said a year. Two yeah, years? I had yeah two years. Yeah. And then later, you became inspired to go back to graduate school to pursue a master's degree. And so, can you talk us through what you were thinking as you decided to go back to um, graduate graduate school? Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, that's a process that looks different for different people. So for someone like, like me who had gotten out of undergrad and had tried to like live a real adult life for two years, but found like, hey, like, I don't think this teaching thing is a good fit for like what my strengths are and what my skill set is. 
um, I knew that I was going to need some time to look at programs, figure out exactly what I wanted to go back to school for, and then write applications and visit different campuses. So after finishing up being a classroom teacher, I actually moved back closer to home to Buffalo, New York, and I got an amazing opportunity to work writing character education curriculum and working with students in Buffalo public schools. Um, But the nice part about that and not being a classroom teacher is that you didn't bring home grading and parent phone calls to make. And the emotional baggage is really different when you just get to like push in and be the friend mentor who comes in and like never gives tests, but just like talks about like emotional health and like mindsets that students are bringing with them into the classroom. And so since work was only eight hours a day after I went home, I was able to like really look at different schools and think through what kind of work I wanted to do. I knew um, I had a really amazing professor my senior year at undergrad, Doug Gerald Mack, who is um, a geomorphologist, which mean he means he studies the shape of the earth, geo-earth morph study and ology, or geo-earth morph shape and ology study of. So his class really resonated with me, and I reached out to him like, hey, Doug, like I know I'm not majoring in geosciences, but it would be really cool to be able to get involved in your lab. So I was able to work with one of his PhD students. She had cut rocks into squares and super glued um, eyelets to them and hung them on strings and then was colliding them and taking pictures of that to figure out what the abrasion process that they were going through looked like. Um, so that was a lot of fun. And again, like the epicness, the kind of ridiculousness of that. Um, you're slamming two rocks against each other. Yes. And then yeah, measuring yeah. how the slamming affected the rock. Yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I reached out to Doug and I had really appreciated the portion of his class that looked at rivers specifically. So that's fluvial geomorphology. Um, and he was really, really um, patient and nurturing was like, hey, like you might want to reach out to these different people. Like I'd be happy to write you a letter of recommendation. So when you're applying to graduate school, people are usually prone to ask you like, oh, like where are you applying? And what really folks mean to ask is, who are you applying to work with? So who thinks in a way that you want to learn to think and follow in their footsteps and view the world and have a similar flavor of curiosity, if you will, as they have had through their career? Um, So with Doug's help, um, I was able to reach out to folks and start, start the application process. You made a really good point that the advisor that you choose, not only do they have to have funding, but you also have to meld well together. You have to really enjoy each other's interests because your advisor's thinking will rub off on you in some way, shape, or form. Uh, and I, you know, we had an extended discussion before about this idea. Um, and and I, I wonder, you know, how has your advisor kind of helped you think about your current research interests and, you know, how to find the weird wiggles in the data? And maybe those wiggles are something important. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for bringing things back around to that question. So um, I have the honor of working with Stephen Lancaster, who is in the College of Earth, Ocean and Atmospheric Science here at OSU. So he mostly does fluvial geomorphology work, looking at sediment transport and um has become interested in heat and water temperature in the past decade or so. A lot of the work he's done with another former professor, Roy Haggerty, um, has 
built up to the thesis that I'm working on now. Stephen is really, really thorough and wonderful at considering all angles. So you can think you have two points and the shortest distance between those two points is a straight line. But I feel like Stephen takes the time to go on a couple of turns and then at the end, you end up with potentially a different narrative if you had just cut to the chase and taken the lowest common denominator. Um, I like to tell people, you can ask Stephen what time it is and he'll tell you to make a clock, which (laughs) when you're trying to figure out if you're measuring the right things in the field can be really difficult. But then you also figure out who else you can go to ask questions on campus. So whenever you're working on a master's, you get to work with two other faculty members. They compose your committee. Um, So you can reach out to either of them. I've had a lab manager, Sarah Lewis, who is um, the lab manager for Gordon Grant. She's been an amazing mentor and really helped me think through things. And especially when I'm talking about my work, figure out like how to say what has happened so that my science isn't being done in a bubble so people are engaged with what I'm trying to communicate across. That's very important, you know. Support from everyone else is just so critical in implementing any sort of science. So speaking of, you know, trying to make sure you don't stay in your own bubble as a scientist, thank you so much for coming on air to Inspiration Dissemination. Our show is coming to a close we can talk so much more with you, Carolyn. Uh, I can only imagine what it was like to be an eighth grade teacher with, with, uh, with Wardy Demarcus. <laughs> Barking Demarcus. <laughs> Barking yeah. Demarcus. That's what it was. Yeah. Um, but we do have two um, two pieces on the show that we like to keep for for everybody. Two traditions. And the first is we ask you for advice. So, what advice do you have, and who are you giving it to? Yeah, absolutely. So I think my word of advice um, applies to folks who are matriculating into graduate school, and I try to still live this out, but be sure to take care of all parts of yourself. So you need to make time to make sure that you feel fully charged and ready to go. And for me, a lot of times that looks like going on a run here or there. Um, During the weekend, I love to listen to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me and do food (laughs) prep for the entire week. So stuff ends up in Tupperware and I get to chuckle as I do that. Um, But you're the one who has to fight for your time. So don't forget to advocate for yourself and kind of protect the whole person that you are. And your time, you've also been willing to devote some of your time to some extracurriculars like the Hydrophiles. Would you like to describe a little bit about what that group does? Yes, I would love to. So the Hydrophiles are the graduate student group for the water program, and they worked to foster academic, social, and professional opportunities for anybody on campus who is interested in water. And they actually put on a research symposium each year. So if you are in town August 23rd and 24th in 2018, they will be holding their symposium and they would love to have you come see what people are working on in the water world. And or if you have research, we would love to have you come present. And the water world is pretty open to the kind of fluvial geomorphology that you do as long as some policy side of things as well. Absolutely. Thanks for bringing that up. So the water program at OSU has three different tracks. There's a policy track, a science track, and an engineering track. So at past symposiums, we've had people doing definitely extensive work on policy, like adaptive capacity um, in the Willamette Basin, which is cool to see other people who are working on a similar field site, but 
in um, from a very different angle. We've also had engineering students come talk about more design aspect things, and then definitely folks who are in labs come and present their work. So as long as you're a water enthusiast, that's really the only requirement. The hydrophile meaning water lover? Yes, exactly. What if you're a hydrophobe? Oh, dear. (laughs) You know, actually, I forgot to ask you one thing, Carolyn. And what are your plans for after graduate school? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I hope to be defending spring term. And after that, I would really love to work still collecting data and processing it, but on a team that is a like-minded group of folk. So that's a very broad, amorphous thing. (laughs) But if you have that opportunity that will be ready in June 2018 and you're in need of an enthusiastic scientist who is really good with words, I would love to talk to you. And who doesn't mind the occasional uh, thinking along detours or back channels (laughs) instead of necessarily (laughs) in a straight line to get to the most, you know. Yes, I'll know how to make a clock. Probably. Conclusion, yeah. Yeah, Very cool. So our other tradition that we have, um, if we're not missing out any on anything else that we should mention, is that we have you choose a song to uh, go out on at the uh, end of this interview. So what song have you chosen and uh, why did it uh, inspire you or why did you choose it? Absolutely. So the song that I have chosen is Big Science, which is by Laurie Anderson, who is an artist that was played in our house growing up. My dad is a big music lover and it's kind of a somber song but I think its message is worth listening to and it kind of speaks to the um, humility that you need to bring with you when you're asking scientific questions. There's a line in the lyrics that says I think we should put some mountains here so the characters have something to fall off of. So just like thinking that humans can interfere and build mountains and shape narratives Um, Really, it's nature that always has the last word. So I think this song kind of captures that. Very cool. That is beautiful. So with that, we'll go straight to the song again. It's Laurie Anderson with a song called Big Science. And Carolyn, thank you so much for your time and coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me.